Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Making choices in life is something we regularly go through almost every day. And evaluating and discerning what is the right choice, what is the right direction to take, that's not an easy task. And yet it's something that we do almost day by day. Uh, one thing that we probably don't face too often is making choices under pressure or where especially the consequences of that choice are so great. If you know anything about the military, you know that when they train, they do so sometimes under live fire. So they will have different obstacles and where you're crawling and doing an army crawl under barbed wire or having to jump over different walls. And there comes a certain point where they have military or artillery or mortars or gunfire going off at the same time simultaneously. And the point of that is, how do you respond when it is most threatening, when it is most dangerous? And to be able to think clearly, it actually takes training to do that. It's not something that you just ordinarily do or can immediately accomplish. You have to usually train your body to sort of get rid of that flight mentality that so often comes with pressure. This context that Jesus is in, remember, as we spoke about last week, was a time where people are trying to kill him. And the way he knows that they're trying to kill him is that they are thinking about it. And because Jesus is God, he knows their hearts. We also know this is no idle threat because only a couple of years later, they do eventually kill him. So as he is communicating and with people who are very much against him and opposing him, antagonistic to him, he's telling himself, the people around him, as well as anyone who follows him, judge with right judgment. Be able to discern what it is to follow him, even though the circumstances are quite challenging and so difficult. I do think that Again, we are making these type of at least big choices, maybe not under duress, but maybe one day you will all the time. If you move to a new area, you are considering what church to attend. That's a very significant choice. For those who are college students or who have college students or have high school seniors, it is a 
real danger to simply say, apply to the best school, don't worry about the church, it'll happen later. You know, how we discern, how we make these type of choices is significant. How we choose a vocation or career, is it simply about money, prestige, fame? How we choose a spouse, maybe personalities connect, but is there a real love for Christ? And anyone who, I've talked to so many, who have not experienced a spouse who loves the Lord, oh, the challenges are, are plenty. There are so many choices, again and again, I could list uh, numerous, but how we make those choices, how do we discern them? How do we discern them with right judgment? This is sort of the framework of what Jesus is speaking of in John chapter seven, verses 15 through 24. And what he does is he sort of maps out some obstacles to this discernment and then some aspects to this discernment. So first we'll look at the obstacles and then the features or aspects of this discernment. First, some obstacles. In verses 15 through 16, we see arrogance as a significant obstacle for Jesus. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Right off the bat, you get a sense of the arrogance that these Jewish leaders have when they question Jesus. And what is it that they approach him with? What is it that they have a problem with? They have a problem with the fact that he has never studied. He doesn't have a diploma. They're questioning his education. What school did you go to? Who are the scholars that you studied under? And as Jesus is speaking, you almost can hear the eyes rolling. Who does he think he is? What right does he have to speak to me? Now, we know that if you read the rest of scripture, as well as even church history, you know Christianity finds education to be important. The reason is we believe in a Bible. The Bible is a written word. And to know God's word, you have to be able to read it. So oftentimes missionaries are on the forefront of literacy. And then education, of being able to study, of understanding context and genres and all these aspects of education. So clearly, Jesus is not against teaching, education, thinking, understanding. But what he is against is the heart that says, in order to speak truth, you need to have a PhD in theology. In order to understand God's word, you have to go to seminary. You have to go to a Bible school. You can go to a Bible school, you can go to a seminary, and that can help you, but it doesn't make you any more valid of a person who can speak God's word. Instead, it should be, here's what someone says. You all have a Bible. You can look at the Bible and see, does that make sense in light of what scripture says? And it should be pretty clear. It shouldn't be something so esoteric or tangled that you have to perform these mental gymnastics to try to figure out what the Bible is saying. It actually is clear. That's what we see in, uh, with the Bereans. They listened to Paul. Paul was preaching. They opened their Bibles and they said, does that make sense in light of what scripture says? And then after they looked and said, yes, it does, they received it with joy. That's what Jesus is looking for. But the Jewish leaders, that's not what they were doing. 
they considered, oh, this Jesus, he's a carpenter. He's someone who is uneducated. So therefore, we should dismiss him. We must dismiss him, and we will. There's not a single sense that they're listening to what he's saying, evaluating it, and then making that determination, other than, say, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Those are the two exceptions. But everyone else, they just automatically dismiss him because he's uneducated. And that is a deep arrogance. It's a close-heartedness that flows out of a certain type of class and a certain type of classism and thinking. My friends, do we ever get caught in that type of trap? That if we listen to someone and we know, oh, they didn't graduate from college or high school, but they didn't go to seminary, and so they're a small group leader, and you know that about them, and you think, what do I have to learn from them? They, don't even, they didn't even graduate high school. I have advanced degrees. So therefore, why would, they, why would I learn anything from them? That's exactly the heart of these Jewish Pharisees. And that type of heart keeps them from knowing Christ. Be forewarned that if we're evaluating people on the basis of their education or what the world deems is smart, intellectual, someone of great stature, that does not always equate wisdom. Certainly not godliness and a, and a heart that loves Christ. A few weeks ago, I spoke of different people in church history who were dramatically impacted, not by fine-sounding theological arguments and big abstract philosophical ideas, but rather by the teaching that was given to children. St. Augustine, who is considered to be one of the greatest theologians and really the greatest minds of not just church history, but of human history. He came to know Christ through a few kids playing a game saying, take and read. And he just picked up the Bible and opened it up and turned to the Lord. I shared also how Berkeley law professor, uh, Philip Johnson comes to know Christ by walking outside, listening to a VBS sermon for kids. Charles Spurgeon, often considered the prince of preachers. If you've ever read or listened, well, I can't listen. It was the 18, early 1800s. But if you've ever read his sermons, they are rich and deep. He never went to college. And yet he started a training school for pastors. He was really one of the first to think on those terms. He very much believed in education, but he himself didn't go to college. Would you listen to him and say, oh, well, if he didn't go to college, then I, what good does he have to say? A.W. Tozer is often considered to be one of the greatest pastors and writers of the 20th century. He's written so much on the holiness of God. And yet, it's said that he never graduated from high school. He learned how to read and read scripture and study scripture just simply being in his bedroom on his knees and praying over and over and over God's word. Again, I don't think at all, Jesus or any of those people would say there is no place for education, studying God's word, under having degrees. That's not the point. But it is to say that perhaps we are far too quick to evaluate, assess, and maybe dismiss people based 
unworldly credentials. And quite the opposite, maybe we are very quick to attribute godliness to worldly credentials. You know what error has devastated churches? Really, it's destroyed them, so many. It's to believe that if a doctor, medical doctor from Stanford, comes to a church, automatically they should be an elder because they're really smart. Or if you are a economist from Harvard or an engineer from MIT, you should be a leader of the church because you have a lot of, you have a lot of smarts. You have not a lot of intellect. That type of thinking destroys churches. It rips them apart. Or it waters down the gospel so much that there is no Christ at all. The church is a place comprised of people who are led by a people who first and foremost love Christ, love his people, love his word. And regardless of what profession, what IQ level, what experiences, what degrees a person has, that does not determine a person's abilities to lead well and wisely, and actually to make good choices, wise and right judgment. So this pride really has kept the Pharisees and so many others from being able to discern rightly God's will. Secondly is hypocrisy, verses 19 through 20. Has not Moses given you the law Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Really, what pride does is it blinds us to our own hypocrisy. Remember that these people were trying to kill Jesus. I mean, they're trying to kill him, and yet they're upset because Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. And to sort of even press that idea even further, Jesus points out in verses 22 to 23, their hypocrisy regarding the Sabbath. He says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? And that's the hypocrisy that is being revealed is that Jesus is saying, listen, you're trying to keep the law of Moses by saying on the eighth day when a baby is born, a male boy, he should be circumcised. And they're focusing on one aspect of this boy's body versus Jesus healing the whole body, doing a greater mercy. And surely in the Old Testament, God is often called a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So what Jesus does is he points out their pride. And that pride keeps them from seeing who Christ is. I mean, is there a more illustrative picture of this obstacle to make right judgments than this hypocrisy? Now, for those of you who are parents, I want you to listen to some of these little phrases that perhaps you have said to your kids sometimes, some standard you've said to your kids, clean your room, don't be late, stop yelling, can't you share, why don't you forgive one another, work hard, don't be lazy, stop procrastinating, stop cursing, stop looking at your phone all the time, can't you be kinder, 
Don't talk about others like that. Can't you be more grateful for what you have? Shouldn't you spend more time with the Lord? Have some self-control and the list is endless. That's a big list. Parents, how many of you keep those perfectly? Raise your hand. Anyone? Have any of your kids ever said to you, mom, dad, you do the same thing. You do the same thing. Kids, I give you permission to say that to your parents. That's dangerous. I know you. And you, you're, but what about you? And what's our response? You be quiet. I'm your parent. You're not allowed to talk back to me. See, we, we don't have a recourse because we hate being called out on hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing. I know you're saying, yeah, but do I never say anything then? Because I, I struggle with it. And the answer is no, you should correct those things. But what we should do is say, I struggle with this too. I will try harder. You can hold me accountable too. If I say clean your room and my room is a pigsty, I want you to hold me accountable to that too. There should be a recognition of the hypocrisy of my heart. The problem is when there's this assumption that I am on the moral high ground and the person who I'm speaking to correcting, I can do whatever I want just because I have some sort of authority over them. And you do. You do have an authority. But that authority is always derivative authority. It comes from the Lord. And whatever you're holding and imposing on someone under you is something you have to remember you as well are being held to that same standard. If we don't do that, then we are blind to the gospel. That's why, whether it's in relationship of friendship, parental relationships and children, marital relationships, and as being a good leader at work, so often is actually remembering what it was like to be a, a, a worker. Someone who is a, promoted to be a manager, they often forget what it was like to be under that type of manager. And the best ones, whether it's in the military or in the workplace or in the family and home, the best leadership is always the one who remembers what it was like to be a child, what it was like to be a worker, what it was like to be a private or a sergeant, what it was like to be someone under. And when they can empathize, still lead, still correct, but always remember, I'm under God. That person is able to melt away the bonds of hypocrisy. And usually they gain a lot of favor with those whom they're leading and guiding and shepherding. It is pride and arrogance that just builds up hypocrisy. And then we get to the place where we say, no, don't even mention that to me. And that heart is a hardened heart. Look at verse 20. The, the response of the people, as Jesus is pointing out these things, they say, you have a demon. That's called an ad hominem attack. You know, it's the, I have no recourse to argue against your point. So I'm just going to make fun of you. I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to yell at you. They don't want to address what he's saying. No one's listening to what he's saying. They just don't want to hear it at all. And so they just attack him, attack his character. And that is the heart of hypocrisy. Really, if we're really honest with ourselves, you see this perhaps in marriage. It's almost always, always two people who are mutual sinners who 
who need to see God's grace in their lives. Even the word always and never, by the way, are words that you should never use <laughs> in a relationship. You're always like this. You're never listen to me. You'd always do that. You never understand me. Those are lies. It's, it is extremely rare for someone to be always and never. It's usually, you know, there's a tendency for you. You are sometimes like this. And until we get to this idea, we'll never be free to actually see Christ. We won't need him. Look at what Jesus warns us in Luke 6, 41 through 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? And then here it is, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Logs are really big, especially redwood tree logs. Imagine that in your eye, and you're trying to talk to someone. They have a little speck. It's hard to see out of your eye when there's a log in your own, and you're going to hit them with your log you know, as you move your head. That's Jesus. I mean, Jesus is using this sort of silly metaphor to show us. So it's so preposterous, but that's how bad hypocrisy is. And until we see that we all have logs, I am a log guy. <laughs> I really am. I'm a log guy. And so because I'm a log guy, all the spec people around me, I should be more gracious to them. I should actually be careful when I'm angry, when my words just flow out with just fury when irritation comes in my heart, and I tell you it's hard. We log-eye people, we have a hard time with anger, irritability. But this is exactly what the Lord is saying. If you do that, and you consistently do that, you will not see why I came. You won't need me. You don't need a savior, because you're your own savior. So this is the impediments. There are so many more, but two of them of making wise choices, right discernment, being able to interact with people well. Here are some of the characteristics, I'll just list two of them for, uh, of what a person who makes right discernment looks like. First, they have genuine faith, and we see this in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I mean, listen to the first part. The condition is, if your will, if your heart's desire is to actually say, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. And whatever God, it's not God what he wants me to do, it's who he is. God's will is his character, his person. It's not just his actions, his decisions. It's what he desires simply even of himself. And that person who says, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to please you. I just want to be flooded with your presence. I want to know who you are. That person will know Christ. They will speak and act and live in accordance with his word. Now, consider this as when we make decisions, let's say we're taking on, we have a possibility of taking on three new jobs. How many of us when thinking about 
God, what is God's will for me in my life? Instinctively, somehow it always aligns up that the highest paying job with the most prestige and position is exactly God's will for me. Like that's how we determine God's will is, well, God, of course he loves me. And so he's going to give me the most money and the best place and neighborhood to live in with the most security. That's how I know God's will. I tell you, I've had many people come to me and ask me, what do you think God's will for me? And they give me this list, of, and this is regarding jobs. They give me this list of choices. Rarely, rarely I've ever heard, you know, this is the least paying job. It actually has, it, it's just the most confounding of circumstances. I think that's actually God's will for me. I should do that. I remember when we were first called to be um, coming to the Bay Area. And in my mind, in my heart, there was just this, like I think so for many of you, when you take on a job, you, you have a, a dream. You have a, okay, I want this type of job. I was coming from being formerly a, a college pastor to being a young adults pastor. And then finally, you get promoted to be a pastor of adults. That's sort of the, the trajectory of a pastor. And there were certain areas of the country that I was candidating in. And one of them was the Bay Area. When I came to the Bay Area, um, I was going to serve, and we were starting out, and we were serving at this one church. And this church had 40, 50 people with no one of our age. And this is not our church. It was a, a different congregation, and they were just supporting us to do this. And there was no one my age. There was 15 youth kids. And it was out of all the other possibilities, really, it was the lowest of the low, you might say, from a job perspective. In fact, I have a dear friend in this room who tried to convince us not to come. And I won't say who that is, but you can, add, you can find out later, maybe. And it made sense, actually, because from a perspective of what seems like all the possibilities, it was the least, it was the lowest of the low. But it is God's grace that he brought us here. Not because I would have ever dreamed of pastoring this church in particular the way that it is, but because he showed me my instinct was so much the way that it always is, which is go where it's most famous, get the most money, have the most degree of success, and that instinct flows deep in my heart, and I'm always battling it. It's always there for all of us. But when you see that what God wants of you is not, hey, take on that which you believe to be the most prosperous, but rather, will you follow him no matter where he takes you? Even if it's a demotion, even if it's at a place where it is not strategic at all. And trust that in pursuing him, not in his gifts, but in him, he will take care of the rest. This is one of the great choices that we have when we make it rightly. That's when you see God move tremendously. One of the great privileges I've had is to walk alongside people who 
have gone through great sorrows, sometimes even death. I get to pasture over people who are dying. And to me, that is both a grievous sorrow, but a wonderful privilege. And sometimes during those times when I hear and I talk to people who are in those places, and I hear things such as, and I want you to know, you know, from we're praying for uh, Joseph and Kendra, and I was talking to them, and all I kept on talking about was God's sovereignty, God's glory, God's providence. And hearing those words coming out of someone who was diagnosed with uh, a very aggressive acute leukemia, you, you see that it's not just about that one. That's been going on for a while, their heart. I've also been walking alongside people who have been in similar circumstances, who actually are angry with God, who are frustrated with him. But when you see how that plays out, so often their whole life is being angry with God and frustrated with him. Those two sides are playing out by faith. One has a faith in the character and nature of God. And because of that, they say, I want to do God's will with my life. And so no matter where you take me, even if it's to death, I will go. The other says, God, everything has to be perfect in my life. And if it's not, you're to blame. And you don't love me. And you're not good. And you're not righteous. That person will not make right choices. And so what the Lord is saying to us is, Anyone who has a will to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. You will know it. You'll see it in God's word. It'll be so clear. And you can trust that. And so when you start making even sub-choices, secondary choices, should I put my kids into public school, private school, homeschool my kids? Uh, should I put my kids into this type of activity? I conflict with Sundays, worship, with uh, spending time with other believers. Should I marry this non-believer? Many, many choices. Those are sub-choices. The ultimate choice is God himself. But if you trust who he is, his character, you will know through his word, oh, no, I shouldn't do this. And it won't be something I need to do or say anything. Your own heart knows it. That's the movement of genuine faith it allows you to see the world in a very different way than the world sees it. Secondly is God's glory. That is the end goal of making any choice. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, who seeks the glory of God, who sent Jesus, his own son, is true. And in Christ, there is no falsehood. You never are missing out. There is no FOMO with Jesus. To know him is to have everything. But the only way that happens is you actually have to want God to be glorified, not yourself. You have to care about God's name, God's renown, God's fame over your own. And every one of us has a desire for self-glory and self-exaltation. But that type of self-glory, it's imprisoning. It's what leads to despair and depression. Jesus says in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. He is the truth. The truth will set you free. To know him is freedom. 
Everybody wants glory. Just watch any of those music shows such as America's Got Talent and, or uh, you know, American Idol. You know people want glory. They are flat as anything in terms of their pitch. They'll sing with their hearts out and they, can't, they get shocked. What do you mean I can't sing? Everyone wants glory. When there's a touchdown scored, there's, usually there's pre-planned celebrations. When there's a shot taken, the game-winning shot, we want to celebrate. It's, it's part of who we are, a home run hit. We want to pump our fists and to say, look at me, I've done it. But that glory, it's always short-lived. I am a Yankee fan. I've been for since 1977. Um, I know I follow baseball almost, okay, not as much as the Lord, but I did. I, I followed a lot. But this, they have not won since 2009. Long time for a Yankee fan. Glory fades. And now I've, I've actually gotten to a point where I don't even follow baseball anymore because I'm so bothered by how they're doing. It, it's, it's shocking how quickly something can be so tremendous and then it's gone, gone in a moment. And it really is ridiculous when you try to recapture glory, such as Michael Jordan trying to be on the Washington Wizards. No, that's not glorious. A 75-year-old, they have a few years left to live. And you go to their house and in their room, are all their trophies from when they were four years old to when they were in high school. Many of them participation trophies. Anyone have a participation trophy of your kids? If you do, get rid of them all. They're meaningless. <laughs> but all the other trophies, those trophies, I was shocked even when my kids did win a legitimate trophy. They're made out of plastic. It's garbage. And we got to a certain point where I thought, I do not want to keep this from house to house. It's, this is annoying. So I started taking pictures of all of them, and I threw them all in the garbage. <laughs> because when you have a 75-year-old, and they are living for their own glory of when they were four years old, I got the, I don't know, the writing contest of a four-year-old. That's ludicrous. It's ridiculous if that's what your life is about. But that's what this world is about, is trying to gain glory for yourself so that you can be significant and worthwhile to show people, the world, somebody that you matter in this world. And so we're clinging to old trophies. Gerard Vassar uh, wrote a book called Glory Hunger. And I really like the way he describes this pursuit. He calls it the Sisyphus cycle of self-glory. Sisyphus was the king in Greek mythology who was condemned by the Greek gods to spend an eternity, if most, some of you know, rolling up this huge rock up this hill. And he'd roll it and it would take forever for him to get this rock up the hill and get it almost to the top, just there, and then it would start tumbling backwards all the way down. And so he had to do it again for an eternity. And my friends, that is what it is like to live for your own glory. No matter what achievement, no matter how wonderful, eventually that glory fades. But we're trying to push this rock up and saying, I could do it. I want to show the world who I am. And then it just tumbles backward eventually and you start all over again. 
By the time you're about to take your last breath, you have nothing. Nothing but tragedy. I spoke to the middle schoolers this week about their identity in Christ and how that should impact the way you communicate with people. And the whole premise of it is rooted on this idea is that if you believe that our self-exaltation actually only leads to depression, despair, frustration, because you'll never be good enough, not even for other people, let alone for yourself. It's only when you recognize that actually you could stop working at it because Christ did the work for you. He gave his life. He is the one who's perfectly righteous. That righteousness in Christ when you believe in him is now yours. You are fully righteous. You are new. You are alive. You are significant. You are worthwhile forever and ever because Jesus is that person for you. That atoning work on the cross did that for you. And so if I could, and I said this to them, if I could have known that as a middle schooler, it would have saved me a lot of heartache throughout life. To get that lesson at the earliest of ages dramatically changes everything. But you can start today. Even if you miss that when you're in middle school or in high school or in college, if you get that today, it can free you. In fact, it shows us, as Jesus says, you can judge with right judgment. When you have a picture and a perspective of God, his glory, living for him, wanting to be in his presence, wanting him more. Heaven is not heaven without Christ. If Christ is in hell, you want to be in hell. Heaven is heaven only because Christ is there. God is worthwhile in worshiping, not because of what he gives you, but because of who he is. And when you know that, that's when joy starts. We're going to close with communion, the elements. We're also going to close with, uh, as we're um, singing, I want to invite you to a song. It's a hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I Know Thou Art Mine. And that's my prayer, my heart, that you would pray that Sing that as your heart, as you're getting ready to take the bread and the wine. And then we'll close with that final song, Forever, Holy Forever, as a reminder of a slip for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the, the cross of Christ. Because of the righteousness of your Son, O oh God, when we trust in the very powerful name of Jesus, we no longer have to live for ourselves. As the elders in Revelation show us, we can cast our crowns down. And those crowns, they're actually not worth that much. So often they are but old trophies that in the moment might seem so wonderful. For some of us, we have a trophy of our athletic achievements, our academics, our physical beauty, what we do at work. We want to tell the world that we are significant because our children have achieved or accomplished something. But all of these will fade. On that last day when we take our last breath, may we not cling to old trophies, but may we instead have that which is endless and infinite in supply, the glory of God, and in doing so, you promise us freedom 
and unceasing joy, pleasures evermore in Christ. As we eat and drink of this bread and wine, may we do so remembering the cost, the cost that it took for us to be in a state of unceasing joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.